Anybody ever gotten an oddly timed phone call? The phone rings at a time that it usually doesn't ring. Maybe it's late at night or very early in the morning or everybody goes, who could that be? Well, I got a call early Wednesday morning from my sister. Early like before I left for work at 7.30. Our phone doesn't ring before 7.30. And her first words were, has mom called you? And I knew from that point something was wrong. I told her no, mom had not called me. And then my sister proceeded to tell me that our cousin had passed away that morning. It's definitely a surprise. This cousin, just a couple years older than me. Um, I hadn't seen her in several years. Still local, but we just kind of, you know, grown apart life-wise. And uh, a lot of memories of holidays, growing up, family get-togethers. And um, I think as much as an addition to our family makes us rejoice, a loss in our family makes us grieve. I think in equal proportions there. And grief, like all of our emotions, grief has to be processed. Um, And so I've been in that process since Wednesday and will continue and work through it well after I speak at her funeral later this afternoon. And I don't say that to manipulate your emotions at the beginning of the message, but I do want to draw your thoughts, your focus toward emotions because we're going to see a lot of them in our passage today and we're going to kind of break down how that applies to us because we as Christians as followers of Jesus we need to be aware of our emotions and we need to be really good at processing them and expressing them and we don't talk about this much kind of an odd topic but we'll see these emotions and different people, how they processed them in today's passage. So if you would, please stand as we read our passage from today, Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 13. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have created us in your image. And as such, we do have a very broad spectrum of emotions. And I pray that as we look into this passage this morning, that it's not just emotional. God, I pray that your spirit would speak and be heard through your word. 
I pray that you teach us what it means to be more like Jesus, to be more like godly people as we handle events and situations that come into our lives and cause us to feel these emotions. Help us, God, this morning we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we finished up chapter 13 last week. And we left Jesus and his men leaving Nazareth after Jesus was outright rejected there, really for the second time, if you'll remember what we said. He had been there a year prior. They tried to push him over a cliff, and he came back, and they rejected him again, sneering at him, who do you think you are? Don't get above your raisin, too big for your britches type of thing. And as we looked at that, what we said was that was the start in chapters 13, end of chapter 13, 14, 15, beginning of 16, of showing how some of the parables that we looked at in Matthew 13 were exemplified in the hearts of different kinds of people. And the first one we saw were the hearts of Jesus' hometown folk there in Nazareth, whose hearts were hard. Um, Now as we move into chapter 14, we're going to see more examples of how this kingdom of the heavens is either rejected or uh, accepted. And it's pretty interesting, uh, I, I think... God for the ministry of John MacArthur, he, he pointed this example out here. If you look at these eight examples that are going to be given in 13 through 16, Matthew 13 through chapter 16, following the parables, there are eight accounts. Six of them will reject Jesus. Two of them will accept or trust him. Kind of like a three to one ratio, right? Six to two. Sound familiar? Four soils. Three that produce fruit or three that don't produce fruit and one that does and this is what i just want to say about that real quickly the holy spirit is awfully smart he's awfully purposeful in how your bible is laid out and arranged keep that in mind nothing's haphazard in the bible nothing happens by accident and we can read through matthew or read bits and pieces and miss that big picture but it's evident, it's clear, and I've missed it all my life until I listened to that message and was like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. So today we move from local nobodies in nowhere Nazareth to a person in the highest places of power, a man named Herod. He's going to be an example of, what do you think? Is he going to be good soil, bad soil? Here's a hint, he's bad soil, okay? So chapter 14, verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Now, first things first, before we get into this Herod guy, the verse starts with at that time. Now, it's, it's important to know that Matthew is not laid out in chronological order. Some things are in chronological order, some things are not, not everything. This, at that time, is not intended to say that this happened after or at the time following what we saw last week at the end of chapter 13. That's not the way the phrase is even set up. The phrase does not indicate the next specific time. It's just kind of at one time. So the Holy Spirit is drawing from a past experience and putting it in this place as Matthew writes out this gospel to illustrate what we've been talking about. So don't place this event as next in line time-wise. And that's not super important, but it's it's interesting that you should know that because you might read it and say, well, this can't be because this actually happened over here. Matthew's not laid out in chronological order. Only Luke is. Okay, well, that's not true. Yeah, Luke purposefully says he lays his out in chronological order. Nobody else does. 
So again, the Holy Spirit is directing Matthew to write what he's writing for a specific purpose. And time is not the main necessity to convey here. So just wanted to make sure we're on the same page with that. Now, on to this Herod the Tetrarch. And this gets really complicated really quickly. Okay? Don't be lulled to sleep by the name Herod. We've heard of Herod before in our journey through Matthew, right? Back in Matthew 2, it was Herod, referred to as Herod the king in Matthew 2-3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. That's when the wise men came. Jesus was born. Okay? Uh, and he told the wise men to bring word back to him about the whereabouts of the one who had been born king of the Jews because King Herod thought he was king of the Jews. And he was nervous as a cat and always looking for the prophecy to come true that somebody would come up and take his place and actually be the king of the Jews. Of course, the wise men didn't follow that order, but that Herod is not our Herod today. Herod's more of a title than a name, even though it is used as a name. Confused yet? Well, you're going to be. So the Herod from Matthew 2 was Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the Roman-appointed king over the lands of Israel and the lands surrounding Israel. And the Jews had no love for Herod the Great. He was not Jewish by birth, but he claimed the Jewish religion. And he was married to a Samaritan, which made him a non-Jew married to a half-breed ruling over the Jews. So he was not very well received. Now, by the time we get to today's passage, Herod the Great has been dead for a while. And his kingdom was divided up between three of his sons. He had a lot of sons. It was divided up between three of his sons who were named Archelaus, Philip, and Antipas. Antipas. I will say, and I don't know how, I'll probably say it every way, every which way but loose. So. so the Herod in our passage today is Herod Antipas, one of the three ruling sons of Herod the Great. He was ruling over lands in the northern area of Israel, including the Galilee area. Here's a little map to show you. If it'll come up, there it is. Okay, so the green lands are Herod Antipas. The red is Archelaus. If you remember, it says when Joseph and Mary heard that Archelaus was reigning in place of his dad, they didn't settle there because Archelaus was a mean man in a bad mood. And then Herod Philip is up there, uh, Galenitis, that area. So you had three main land areas, three main people ruling over these areas. But the word tetrarch implies one of four. For there to be such a thing as a tetrarch, there have to be four of them ruling over four areas. But we've only got three areas. Okay? And there's no resolution to that. We just have three areas, three people who were ruling over these areas, and for whatever reason they called them tetrarchs, which was not so. So, let me sum that up a little bit. Our Herod today is one of three... So technically he's not a tetrarch, but he's called one because I don't know why. Okay, I don't know what they were thinking there. But I mean, this was commonly known. This is written in history books and everything. More about him and his crazy family tree in just a little bit. But what we see here in verse 1 is that Herod the tetrarch, who wasn't really a tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus. Well, of course he did. I would reckon at this point, everybody had. Jesus was big news. He was big time. He was healing, teaching, exposing false worshipers. And the masses were just a buzz about him. He was trending on Twitter, to say the least. 
any worshiper, I'm sorry, any ruler would have their finger on the pulse of their people, and this pulse was beating steadily about this man named Jesus of Nazareth, who was headquartered in Capernaum, teaching and sending out disciples who were doing similar things as him. And if you look, both Nazareth, which we, you can't see it there, Nazareth and Capernaum, there at the top of the Sea of Galilee, are in Herod Antipas's area. So he's hearing about Jesus a lot. He heard about his fame. And his disciples doing the same thing. Everybody was talking about it. And Herod's land area was the center of Jesus' activity. So naturally, he heard about the fame of Jesus. So how does he react to hearing of this man and his fame? Verse 2. And he, Herod, the Tetrarch, who's not really the Tetrarch, said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now that just makes sense, right? What? What? This very important ruling man, when he heard about the fame of this, when he heard about the fame of this itinerant Jewish rabbi, responded by assuming that this miracle-working rabbi obviously had to be a regeneration of a dead Baptist. Obviously, John was dead before this. We'll get into that in a little bit too. And when Herod saw miracles being done, he jumped to the conclusion that since something supernatural was happening, it must be a manifestation of a dead man raised back to life. This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Okay then. Paranoid much? Actually, yes. Yes, he is. He's very paranoid. Why? Now, here's a story worth telling, and it's complicated too. So, batten down the hatches. Verses 3 and 4. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Okay, so things get really weird here. Okay? This is like West Virginia stuff. Okay? Sorry. It says that Herod had a long-running relationship with John the Baptist, but not for a good reason. He had thrown John in prison, which we had seen back in Matthew 11, when John sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus if Jesus was the one promised to come, the Messiah, or if they should look for another. John sent these disciples when? It says when he was in jail. Well, it turns out it was our Herod Antipas today who had thrown him in prison. Why? Our text today says, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So why would he throw John in prison because of his brother's wife? Because Herod had taken her as his own wife. And if you know, the Holy Spirit inspiring Matthew validates that she is not Herod's wife. The Holy Spirit calls her your brother Philip's wife. So he doesn't validate that marriage. Neither does John the Baptist. She's called his brother Philip's wife because that's what she had been. She was married to Herod's brother Philip. Now you would think that that means the brother Philip who was the other tetrarch, who wasn't technically a tetrarch anyway, but but it isn't that Philip. It's actually another Philip who was another brother of Herod Antipas, same dad, different mom. So anyways, history tells us that this brother Philip lived in Rome. He wasn't a ruler, he wasn't a king or anything, just a Roman citizen. He had a wife named Herodias. And here's where it gets really weird. This Herodias, who was the wife of Philip, the normal Roman citizen Philip, not the Tetrarch, 
it's not really a tetrarch, Philip, was actually the daughter of one of Herod the Great's sons, whose name I don't know. So this citizen Philip had married his half-brother's daughter, and now Philip's half-brother, Herod Antipas, was seducing and eventually taking as his wife his brother's wife, who was another brother's daughter. Confused yet? Yeah. I am my own grandpa. That's a... It's confusing, but what I do know is that this Herod family tree starts looking like a straight stick with no branches at all as you go on up at it. <laughs> We're just all going to get together. Yeah, ick, right? I mean, yuck. Anyways, Herod Antipas, from our text today, stole his brother's wife, made her his own, and came back to his land to rule and to reign with her. He divorced his former wife and married this woman here. Well, John... God's man, God's prophet, who at that time was preparing the way for the Messiah to come, confronts Herod and says it's not right for him to have his brother's wife. Now, we don't know why this took place or where or how, but John publicly denounces this union because it was ungodly and unlawful. Well, this lady Herodias, she's not a nice person. Okay? Not at all. She has a very Jezebel kind of feel to her, okay? And she hated John. He, who had come in the spirit and power of Elijah, Scripture says, was operating in his prophetic role, and she, Herodias, was the evil queen in the storyline, and she hated John. So I'm sure she just hounded and harangued her husband, who wasn't really her husband and who really wasn't a tetrarch. And anyway, all that kind of stuff. she just had to be on him like a dripping, 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 dripping drain to do something about this annoying prophet guy who was parading around in his camel hair telling them what's right and wrong. So Herod, the not really tetrarch, bows to his non-wife's will and throws John in prison. On what charges? Public annoyance? Preachiness, not sure. But he placates this woman by imprisoning John. The text says Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. So at this point, Herod is afraid of Jesus. He'd been afraid of John. And he's afraid of this woman who he calls his wife who's not really his wife. See a pattern? Well, it continues. Verse 5. And though he wanted to put him to death... He feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Herod just wanted to go ahead and kill John to get him out of the way. That'd be best in his mind. One problem, though, the people. Herod's people that he ruled over saw John as a prophet, one sent from God, and so revered him and held him in high regard. So, with this groundswell of public support, John was not killed because Herod feared what the people may say or do if he did what he wanted, or really what his non-wife wanted. So here's Herod, caught in a triangle of fear, afraid of John, afraid of his wife, non-wife, whatever, and afraid of his people. This guy just had to be miserable. So something's going to have to give, and give it does, and the way it gives is probably ickier than anything that we've seen at this point. Six and seven. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, we're pretty big on birthday celebrations in our culture, but it wasn't so at the time of Jesus. Um, To have a big birthday celebration was pretty much a sign of being self-inflated 
and arrogant, which maybe it still is. But anyway, well, Herod definitely qualifies as self-inflated and arrogant, okay? And when he had birthday parties, he had birthday parties. They were big to-dos. It was usually a bunch of men for a while who were just drinking, you know, big drinking guy type stuff. And usually they would bring in the dancing girls. Use your imagination. We won't go any further with that. So at one celebration, again, a debauched, almost orgy type deal, the dancing ladies were brought in. And one of these ladies was Herodias' daughter. This man's non-wife's daughter. His stepdaughter. And she danced before the company and it says, wow, just wow, and pleased Herod. This man's stepdaughter is dancing in a suggestive way before him and he likes it. He liked what he saw from his his stepdaughter. Yeesh. And he was so pleased and probably so drunk and lust-filled that he promised in everybody's presence to give her whatever she might ask. I love you, baby. I'll give you whatever you want. You please me, so I'll please you. So gross. And watch this, verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So you're probably a teenage girl. That's what they think at, at this time. She's probably a teenage girl. You've come in and danced in front of a bunch of sick, perverted men. It went well, at least in their estimation. And the leader of them all, who happens to be your stepdad, whose birthday it is, offers you anything you want as a result. So then what? Well, she runs to Mama, who it would seem has been at least in agreement with this. She might have even been behind it all. Because when daughter asks mama what to ask for, mom says, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. I don't know about you. Teenage girls in here? Yeah, I know we do. If somebody said, I'll give you whatever you want. Give me some dude's head on a platter. What? That's not in my top 100 items of things that I would want. I don't think. That's, that's, That's not on my Amazon list, okay? Again, that that makes me think that mom was behind this whole thing to begin with, which is even more amazingly sick and a pretty good indicator of how nasty this woman Herodias is. She, just like Jezebel long before her, could not abide the thought of God's prophet even being alive. She would do anything to have him killed, even prostituting her own daughter to her quote-unquote husband. And her scheme works, and her daughter asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. How does Herod respond? Well, as is his custom, he responds out of fear. The king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And the king, who wasn't really a king, by the way, we won't get into that, not even a tetrarch, but, but he was sorry. Why? Well, we read here in Matthew that it said that he wanted to kill him, and I think that he wanted to kill him because his wife was saying kill him. Because look here in Mark 6, 19 through 20, in the same account in Mark's gospel. And Herodias had a grudge against him, John, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, 
and yet he heard him gladly. So we see a couple different things in this passage from Mark regarding Herod and John's relationship. Like most people and things, Herod feared John. It says he feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and hence he kept John safe from Herodias' efforts to have him killed. But also he heard John, which means that he would call for him and listen to John, what John had to say. And while it perplexed Herod, he heard him gladly. That's kind of weird, right? So like Herodias is gone somewhere. She's at the mall shopping or something. And Herod's like, hey, bring John. I'd like to talk to him. John, what's going on? Uh, you're a sinner? Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm confused about that, but I like what you're saying. Keep saying it. He feared him. But he was perplexed by him. And he protected him. He kept John safe from Herodias' efforts to have him killed. So back in verse 9 from Matthew 14, Herod is sorry to have John killed. That's what it said there. It said he was sorry. He wouldn't have done it himself for sure, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded that John's head be brought on the platter as Herodias' daughter had requested. In other words, he feared looking like a liar or like a scaredy cat to his birthday party guests. And since he had made an oath to give whatever the dancing girl requested, he commanded that the head be given as she asked. His fear of looking bad led him to have John beheaded. He didn't want to, but he was more afraid of looking bad to those around him. Verses 10 and 11. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Man, what a terrible couple of verses. John, in his prison, heard footsteps, watched the door open, and saw the executioner, and then they removed his head from his body there in the prison. And that head, the head of the one that Jesus had called the greatest of those born among women, was put on a platter and taken to this dancing girl who took it to her evil mother, who must have been delighted at the sight of it. Unbelievable. And why? Because John had called sin, sin. And regardless of the position of those who are committing it, it's still sin. It's still an affront to a holy God, and God's man will boldly say so, as we see in John's life. And those who hear it will either repent in sorrow, or they will hate the one who tells them about it. And that's still true today. More on that later, though, in application. Verse 12, And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, And they went and told Jesus. After John was beheaded, his disciples came and took John's body and buried it. And I can just imagine they made some sort of arrangements with Herod there. Can we at least take his body? And Herod's like, no. Now imagine the sorrow, maybe even the fear. These are John's disciples. I would think Herodias didn't like them either. As these men who loved and admired John so much, who had spent so much time with him, learning from him and emulating him, now show up to Herod's prison to take the headless body of their hero to bury it and grieve their loss. And in the process, they thought, we need to let Jesus know. Jesus, John's cousin, and the one who John had spent his life preparing the way for, heard from John's disciples that John was dead beheaded by a man of power who was afraid of everybody around him. 
set up by a woman who was called out in her sin and who hated the man who called her out. Sold at the price of a dancing girl's twirling hips. They had to tell Jesus. He had to know. They had to make sure he knew. And how does he respond? Verse 13. This tears me up, y'all. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. We're not going to get in the crowds and the towns right now. That's next week. I think of all the portraits of Jesus in the Gospels, this one just sticks out to me. Jesus, God in the flesh, gets word that his cousin and forerunner has been beheaded. John's disciples who had buried him gets word to Jesus that John was dead. And Jesus, who hadn't lightened John's fears when John sent questions to Jesus from the prison before, when he hears this tragedy, Jesus withdraws from where he was, gets in a boat, and goes off by himself. I don't know, because the Bible doesn't say what Jesus was thinking or feeling. But I know that in his human form, he felt what we feel. He was sad. He felt grief. He felt sorrow. And in an effort to process those feelings, he goes off in a boat by himself. Again, I don't know, but I would think that he prayed. Probably cried. He probably remembered John's life. And there by himself, feeling the precursors of what he himself would ultimately go through too, preparing for it and hating the sin that made it necessary. But I would think there was joy in Jesus' heart and mind for John's new state now too. Jesus, of all people, knew what awaited John the moment that his head was removed from his body. John was now in the presence of God, receiving his reward and knowing for sure that Jesus, God's Messiah, would indeed bring many sons to glory and that all that work in preparing the way for him was well worth it. All that time in jail was well worth it, even to the point of laying down his life. And Jesus would be grieving and rejoicing in this time by himself, away from the crowds, away from the crush, away from all those people. Alone, there with his Father, Jesus would process all these emotions and prepare for what was up ahead. And that's where we'll stop today. So how do we apply this? Let's look at application. We've got three C's. We're looking at emotions. Three C's today. Cry, cower, and confrontation. Couldn't decide between confront or confrontation. Cry, cower, confrontation. First cry. And this act obviously indicates grief, right? John's disciples and Jesus grieved the loss of John. And grief is a natural part of everyone's life. And some people more than others. And we are not, please hear me say this, Christian. Please hear me say this, everybody sitting in this room this morning. We are not, as Christians, to be those who avoid or dismiss grief. Quite the contrary, we should do grief really well. Better than other people. 
We saw last week in Isaiah 53 in our application points that Jesus was a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. We saw him today retreat and be alone after hearing of the death of his cousin John. There are far too many in the Christian world today who would associate grief as a non-Christian concept. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible is full of examples of God's people grieving and righteously so. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are full of grief. And I'm afraid that we resort to Christian cliches for people who are grieving. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Paul says this to the Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which means dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now let me say point blank, he's not saying that you may not grieve, but that your grief may not be like other people's grief. That your grief wouldn't be like those people who have no hope, but that your grief would have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And I would say, because it's in the same paragraph, it's in the same thought. Therefore, encourage one another in your grief with these words. Paul tells the Thessalonians that we as Christians have a hope after death that puts our grief in proper perspective. There is life after death and there's the promise of the return of Christ, which makes death not a final step, but just a step. In the progression of God's plan. And why do we grieve? Because they're gone for right now. We grieve because it's sad. And we do that rightly. But now, of course, we don't just grieve about death. There's other things to grieve besides just death, right? Romans 12, 14 through 18. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, in that snippet from Romans 12, we're commanded to bless and not curse... Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony, not be haughty, associate with the lowly, and on and on. Latch on to the thought of weeping with those who weep. We need to be that kind of people. People who weep with those who weep. Not accuse them of not having faith because they're sad. Not relying on or automatically going to pious platitudes of why someone shouldn't be sad because someone's in a better place or because we're commanded to rejoice in all things or God's got a plan. 
these things are true. Absolutely they're true. But so is the need for sadness. The need for being like Jesus and being well acquainted with grief. Weep with those who weep. Don't tell them why they shouldn't be weeping. Grieve with hope. Get alone and process your sadness. Pour out your heart to God. These things are right. And from today's passage we see not only are they right, they're patently Christ-like. So that was application point one, cry. Now, cower. This is referring to what? To fear. We saw a lot of fear in the passage today. Herod was afraid, it would seem, of everybody. He was afraid of Jesus. He was afraid of John, Herodias, his party guests, the people he ruled, and who knows who else. It seemed to be pretty much a lifestyle for him. He had so much to lose in his mind. His power, his position, his people, his pride. And this caused him to cower at every rustling leaf that threatened his stability. John, however, it would seem, was not afraid of Herod or Herodias or anybody else. Which is where our application point comes in. Why was he not afraid? Because he knew that no person in any position of power or influence could or would be able to do anything outside of God's will. Yes, he did send his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for another? And there was doubt, but he knew where to take that doubt. He knew where to take that fear. He took it directly to Jesus. And he wasn't afraid of anybody else. Makes me think of Proverbs 28.1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. In Psalm 56, 10 through 11. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And that's a wonderful truth, right? But let's be honest. Anybody ever get afraid? Yeah. We get afraid sometimes. So then what should we do with our fear when we feel it? Same thing John did with his. If we go back a few verses in Psalm 56, right before 10 and 11, the psalmist says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Now watch that progression there. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I shall not be afraid. When I'm afraid, I'm going to put my trust in God. I'm going to put my trust in God's word, and then I'm not afraid. So is this saying we should never be afraid? No. It's saying when we get afraid, we know what to do with it. We know where to go with it. When something makes us afraid, we go to God with it. We go to God's word with it. And then... I shall not be afraid because I realize that God tells me, his word tells me, flesh can't harm you. Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can only kill the body. But fear the one who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. What can flesh do to me? Well, actually quite a bit. Read the end of Romans 8, right? 
famine, nakedness, peril, sword. All those things can happen. And we're more than overcomers in the midst of them. Because we take those things to God. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God. In God I trust. Then I shall not be afraid. We take our fear to God. To God's word. Then we trust Him with it. And in the midst of it. And we're bad again, I'm afraid, as Christians. To be quick to tell our brothers and sistren in Christ. Fear not. Fear not. And we should tell them that. But we should also help them deal with their fears, not deny them or make people feel guilty because of them. What are you afraid for? You think God's not Lord of cancer? Well, I do, but I'm afraid. Then take it to God. Let me take it to God with you. Let me tell you what, when the doctor puts his hand on your shoulder and says, I've got something to tell you, you're going to get afraid. When you come home and your door's been broken open and there's stuff missing in your house, you're going to be afraid. What do you do with that fear? Take it to God and tell Him that you are afraid. When somebody comes up and says they're afraid, don't make them feel bad. Weep with them. Hurt with them. And help them carry their fear to the presence of God who alone can take that fear away from them as they put their trust in Him. We should not be those who make people feel bad for their grief. We should not be those who make people feel bad for their fears. We should be those who help people in those times. Because that's what the scripture tells us to do. Finally, confrontation. We saw in action today, John confronting the sin of Herod and Herodias. We too should be both angered and grieved over sin. Not just our sins, but the sins of other people, the sins of the culture, the sins of the world. And we should, in that anger and in that grief, call sin, sin. We are to boldly powerfully call it out in ourselves, each other, and to the world at large. And we should not allow any anger, listen to me, to influence how we treat those who are committing those sins. Look at how John interacted with Herod. This man had had John thrown in prison, and any time Herod called him, John would come and converse with him, preach to him. To the point that Herod heard him gladly. Sinners should be both convicted and glad to hear us speak when we call their sin, sin. Now they're not always going to respond well. We said earlier, sometimes they're going to hate us. That's true. Does that mean we change our attitude toward the sin? No. But here's the deal, I think. I think this is what this this is the the fulcrum at which this thing really pivots. It's not our job to convict anybody. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But it is our job to tell the Herods of the world that it's not lawful for them to have their brother's wife. 
And we don't capitulate in the face of power, influence, or opposition even. Even to the point from John and Jesus' examples of death. And while we may not ever be put in that position, maybe, we have to have that same conviction because sin is sin and we can't compromise there. And if you are going to confront sin in the culture today, it's going to be tough. Now we could just stick our heads in the sand and say, oh well, people are going to do what people are going to do. Nothing I can do about it. Or we can stand up and say, well, that's sinful. Any issues in the culture that you think might be applicable here? Ten or twenty of them that come to direct mind. It's sin to kill an unborn baby. It's an abomination to God for a man to lie with a man. And a woman to lie with a woman. It's sin. It's sin to cohabit with somebody you're not married to. It's sin to eat from gluttony. It's sin to lie on your taxes. And if somebody is telling you that they're doing these things, Christian, whether they're saved or not, it's your job to call sin, sin. Jude 17 through 23. Listen to this. This gives us a perfect picture of what this looks like. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now there's a lot there. A whole lot there and we can't get into all of it. But it's here that I have to refer to another Christian cliche, which is hate the sin but love the sinner. And you know what? I think that cliche is right. I think it's right. We have to hate, even confront sin, but we are called to love the Herods of the world, showing them mercy, Jude says, working to snatch them from the fire, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. That means that we hate the sins that they commit with a holy passion. And all the while we're laboring for the very soul of the person who is committing that sin. We saw John's example of this with Herod, and we see it in Jesus' prayer on the cross as his enemies nailed him there to that tree and mocked and ridiculed him. What's he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. They didn't pay any attention to that. Can we be those as Christians who abhor the evil being done and at the same time pray for and love those who are committing it? Can we be those who faithfully and lovingly confront the sins of the sons of the evil one while petitioning our Father for their very souls? 
John did it. Jesus did it. And listen to me. By the power of the same Holy Spirit that empowered them, so can we. Far too many times in my life, I've stood up and pounded a pulpit and talked about how bad sin was. And that's right. And had no love whatsoever for the person who was committing it. That's not all right. Listen to me, church. The world is watching us. And though it may sound odd, and maybe we don't talk about it enough, they're watching us, and how we process and show our emotions is a direct indicator of whether we have been made new or not. How you process your grief, how you process your fear, how you process your hatred and anger towards sin is vitally important to reaching the lost world. I would say our evangelistic lives depend on processing our emotions well. And we don't like to talk about emotions, right? Well, you're just getting into emotional stuff. We don't need another emotional stuff. It's got the ball up, and I got the face on, and I'm good. Leave me alone. How you feeling? I'm good. How you doing? I'm fine. No, we ain't. We're sad and we're scared and we're mad. And rightfully so. So be sad. Know what to do with your fear. Be angry at sin and love sinners. Cry, cower, and confront in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. May our emotions be sanctified. And may our processing of them show that we are connected to the one who one day will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Who stands ready to receive the fear that we bring to him and speak peace into our fear. And the one who hates sin so much that he will cast people into hell forever for committing sin. And the same one who made a way for sinners like me to avoid that punishment. By the death of his son on a cross, whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out for the forgiveness of many. I pray that our emotions will show that we know that God. And that he is Lord of our emotions. May we grieve, fear, and hate well. for the glory of God, for the good of others, and for our own sakes as well. Let's pray. God, there are many, many, many days. I wish you had just designed us to have no emotions. We could just plow through and do what we need to do and get done and collapse at the end of the day and get up and do it again the next day. But God, being created in your, in your image, we grieve, we hate, we love, we fear. And fear is not from you. But it's part of the human experience and 
You're not ashamed of those of us who come and say, God, I'm afraid. Help us to be people who live through our emotions and express your glory while we do that. When my heart is overwhelmed, I will look to you alone. God, my rock. When I've struggled to believe, you've not let go of me. Carried through the darkest storms, you've held me in your arms. God, my rock. You are the strength of my heart. You are my song in the night. And we do feel that the world is broken. And all creation is groaning. And we wish we could see it all made new again. And we will. Help us to extend that hope to the hurting, lost, sinning people out there in the world. And may they see it in our grief, in our fear, and in our hatred of their sins. And in the hatred for our own sins as well. And God, we need your Holy Spirit's power to process these emotions and to live them out properly. So we ask for help. And we know that you are faithful. And God, if there are those here today who do not know what it means for Jesus to be their Lord, Lord of their emotions, Lord of their lives, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, convict them of their sins. We're all sinners. We all need saved. We all need forgiveness. And that forgiveness comes as we trust in the sacrifice of Jesus, a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief, who laid his life down on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, a price that we could not pay to purchase us back, to redeem us. God, would sinners place their trust in that sacrifice today? May they grieve over their sins and find joy in the forgiveness and redemption that comes through Jesus' sacrifice. Holy Spirit, have your way. Bring life, convict, and heal as only you can. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay neat with us if you can.